every patient that I care for is like taking care of my own child. My name is Candy, and I'm a nursing assistant at Lifespan. He's a handsome boy. I've been working in the PICU for 10 years. I love the miracles that we see. It's so rewarding. You know, the families that we get to help, they put their child in our hands. We have to be there to support them and take care of them, deliver health with care. Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Whenever you have a healthy oyster bed, anything that depends upon it is better. And it turns out, oysters actually restore marine environments. But that didn't stop the skeptics who thought the resurgence of oysters was impossible. What did people say when you said, oh, we're gonna bring oysters to the Hammonasset River? A lot of people laughed at us. Yeah, they said that we were crazy. The COVID limit was 500 clams a day. Now it's back to 12 bushels a day. This trip, you won't even get half out of it. Not the easiest way to earn a few clams, even in a good year. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. The Irish satirist Jonathan Swift once said he was a bold man that first ate an oyster. But these days, folks at raw bars across the U.S. seem to have plenty of courage. By some estimates, Americans consume two billion pounds of shellfish each year. But before these mighty oysters are served, they spend their lives boosting habitats and filtering water in local ecosystems. And as associate producer Isabella Jabillion first reported last November for our continuing Green Seeker series, it's been a long and bumpy ride for this growing environmental superstar. And you lift the, the shell off, and there's a perfectly shocked oyster. Bob Rowe is the executive director of the East Coast Shellfish Growers Association. Oysters have a long history in the U.S., but and they really sustained a lot of the settlers because it was easy to catch an oyster. Um, they don't run away. The Indians were harvesting it well before we got here. There are piles of shells that are the size of several football fields, several feet deep from when the Indians used to eat them. The oyster business peaked in the late 1800s in places like New Orleans, Baltimore, and New York City. They used to harvest the oysters and hold them in the East River um, so that they would be nice and fresh. But the East River was also where they dumped all their waste. And it was around that time that they discovered bacteria caused disease. And so there were a lot of people dying from eating these contaminated oysters. When they discovered that the oysters were killing them, it quickly eradicated the market. By the end of the 1920s, the industry had collapsed. For the next 50 years, it languished, facing other major problems, including labor shortages and industrial pollution. But in 1972, oysters got a boost when Congress passed a comprehensive piece of legislation designed to protect the environment. The Clean Water Act was huge because it funded wastewater treatment plants all around the country and um, really mandated that we not put pollutants into our rivers and streams and into the ocean. 
But the new law couldn't protect oysters from a deadly disease that began in the south and quickly spread throughout East Coast waterways. Particularly hard hit was the Hammonasset River in Connecticut. The die-off was dramatic. Tim Weisel is a longtime oysterman and the coordinator at the Sound School in New Haven. A century ago, this area was known as Oyster Point, and today's Water Street was just that, water. Right around here, we've, we estimate, was the actual shoreline. This is where the high tide came up. We have pictures of oyster boats in, in the street area offloading into these houses. And these basements, what were they used for? They were the shucking houses. They would open up the oysters with knives, put them in tins, ice them, and get them to market as quickly as possible. But like the rest of the country, Oyster Point's heyday would not last. Weisel says disease, sewage contamination, poor yields, and a series of hurricanes crippled Connecticut's industry. The chances of rebound seemed slim. Did you ever expect the oysters to come back to that area? No. Uh, when I, early on, when I started talking to most of the oystermen th that helped me in my research over the years, they did not, they saw the slow demise of the oyster industry. Uh, they, they didn't think it was ever come back. Um, they were, you know, talked about the good times and when there was oysters everywhere and plentiful and then they had declining water quality. A lot of the beds were, a lot of the oystermen were just put out of business overnight. Um, one day they were in business and the next day uh, they were closed. Mike Gilman and his business partner, George Harris, run Indian River Shellfish. The two started farming oysters on the Hammonasset River in 2015. I don't think anybody well, oystered here for, what, 36 years? What did people say when you said, oh, we're going to bring oysters to the Hammonasset River. A lot of people laughed at us. Yeah, they said that we were crazy. And we were warned many times by many different people that, that you're, uh, you're, on a fool's, you're on a fool's errand, kind of. That fool's errand turned out to be a big environmental win. How many oysters do you think you have? Right now? Yes, in the water. Uh, two million-ish. Two million oysters. Ish, yeah, roughly. Maybe a little more. Those two million didn't come back on their own. Oysters start their lives as tiny larvae floating through the water. To survive, they must attach to a hard surface. What the oyster is looking for is other members of its own species, so it looks for shells. When Harris and Gilman arrived on the Hammonasset River, the bottom was too soft and too muddy for the oysters to set. They had to adapt. We had to find other ways, so that's why we switched to cage growing. Seven years ago, we, we had nothing but mud. And then within a year, maybe two years, we start, you started finding fish coming up in the cages. So historically, the harbor is a nursery for juvenile fish, blackfish, black sea bass. Uh, winter flounder. Winter flounder is a big buzzword because they suffered really big declines in the 80s and 90s. And they need protection. The cages offer them protection. So they go in them. Pipefish, seahorses, things like that. Be juvenile blue crabs, they all go in the cages. 
Excited by the now-growing oyster population, nearby towns worked with Gilman and Harris to put clean shell in the river to bring back some of the natural oyster beds. The resurgence has had broad impacts. All of our oysters can filter what goes up and down this river pretty much every day, or most of it. A single oyster filter is 50 gallons of water in a day. Peter Solomon teaches environmental and underwater science at the Sound School. One of the great experiments you can do, and what we'll do, like you bring a bunch of dirty water in a tank, put a bunch of oysters in it, and come back a few hours later, and that water will be noticeably clearer. Clearer water means that light can penetrate, giving marine plant life a chance to grow. A lot of times when we talk about oysters, we throw out this buzz term, ecosystem services. So in addition to how delicious oysters are, they help with coastal resiliency, can reduce wave energy coming in, and they create a lot of valuable habitat for other species. By absorbing the impact of incoming waves, oyster beds can protect shorelines. So there's other ways of dealing with coastal erosion besides we're going to build a wall. And Solomon and his students have been doing restoration efforts of their own. New Haven had this huge historical oyster industry, and we wanted to start recreating some of those natural reefs to provide those benefits for the ecosystems right here in the harbor. They use concrete domes called reef balls. Like a rock or shell, they can provide a place for oysters to set. We're seeing a very different ecosystem than the smooth bottom that did not receive our restoration treatment. Uh, so we have a sandier substrate in that area, and as soon as you start seeing the reef falls, you see more oysters. We have a lot of fry, small fish swimming around there. A lot of other species were in, uh, interacting with our oyster reef, especially in the void space between the reef balls. We've seen blackfish, we've seen blue crabs mating. Outside Connecticut, there's a broader environmental movement happening. There's a huge effort pretty much up and down the East Coast to restore um, the oyster beds to, you know, wild oyster beds just for their ecosystem services. Case in point, in Virginia, the Chesapeake Bay has been the center of a massive restoration project. They've turned to programs like shell recycling, which collects empty shells from restaurants to go back in the water. They've also put out reef balls and shell already seeded with oysters. The projects hope to add 10 billion more oysters by 2025. Can we say that the eastern oyster has recovered? So the, the population is really a, a tiny fraction of it what, what it was historically. Um, but what I would say is that in the last 10 years, through intensive aquaculture, we've been able to do quite a remarkable job of recovering uh, quite a bit of it. So we've doubled oyster production on the East Coast in just the last five years. So this is a wonderful renaissance we're seeing of oyster production. Since we last spoke with the folks at Indian River Shellfish, they've started a new environmental program aimed at cleaning up old lobster pots that litter the ocean floor. And here in Rhode Island, conflict over aquaculture has flooded jurisdictions with local coalitions in towns like Tiverton opposing the expansion of shellfish farms into their waters. And now we turn to another area where the oyster's superstar status is growing. Here in the Ocean State, a thriving aquaculture industry has turned to genetic research in order to protect the annual oyster crop from dangerous pathogens that exist naturally in Narragansett Bay. And as Rhode Island PBS producer, director Jamie McGuire first reported back in June of 2021, oysters and genetic research may go a long way in understanding and even preventing diseases in humans as well. 
I'm Marta Gomez-Cierri. I'm a professor at the University of Rhode Island, and I work on the area of aquatic pathology. I was hired to help the aquaculture industry and also the Department of Environmental Management on managing populations of animals in the Bay. And so my role is to follow up, um, to monitor diseases and see what the impact is on those wild and cultured populations and then figure out ways to manage those diseases. So diseases affect oysters at different stages, starting from the larvae that they grow in the hatcheries all the way to the adults that they deploy in the, and grow in the farms. So the way we're trying to manage that disease in the hatchery because it happens so quickly is to provide something in the water that um, minimizes the prob probability of that pathogen to cause disease in the oyster. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professor in the Department of Cell and Molecular Biology. We actually got interested in the project because Marta said, oh, there's this problem in the oyster hatcheries. Every summer, um, a number of the hatcheries will be affected with bacterial infections caused by uh, particular organisms that wipe out the oyster larvae. At the same time, we became interested in using these bacteria, some bacteria as um, probiotic organisms. Can they prevent disease, not treat disease, but in fact prevent disease in the oyster uh, larvae where the problem really is? The question we want to answer really is, can we prevent infectious disease outbreaks in aquaculture facilities by introducing beneficial bacteria? My name is David Rowley. I'm a professor here at the University of Rhode Island. I teach infectious disease. With these juvenile and larval oysters, they succumb to those infections very, very quickly. And so treatment is really not an option. Prevention is really where we need to focus our attention. Since a lot of those infectious uh, agents are bacteria, we've thought that we could combat them with beneficial bacteria. And we can we found those bacteria that can prevent infections. So the way we start, we start in the lab and we have our pathogens that we know can kill larval oysters and we have potential microbes that we isolate from water or from other oysters that are healthy. We test them with oysters, larval oysters in the, in the lab. Basically we expose the larval oysters to the potential probiotic and then we add the pathogen and see if the probiotic protects the oysters from from dying. We developed two probiotics and we've been testing them in, in different hatcheries throughout the East Coast. And uh, sometimes they work great, we see a great effect, and sometimes they don't provide that much of an effect. So we're trying to figure out if we have to improve the probiotics that we're using or find other microbes that will be combined with the ones that we already have to improve that efficacy of the probiotics, to make them better. In order to understand how these types of bacteria, beneficial bacteria, could prevent infectious diseases, we need to understand the genetics of those organisms. You know, how do they do this? What are the mechanisms? What are the, the, the different ways that bacteria will interact? Because we've sequenced the genomes of both our probiont and our pathogen, we know a lot about the genomes of these organisms. We can specifically go in and ask questions about genes that we think are involved. We don't infect anything at, at their facilities, but we can throw in our probionts and show that they protect and they get better yields or what happened actually happens. And we showed that there's, they weren't hurting their production. And if anything, they're getting better survival. So without 
all the, the, the knowledge of working with DNA, we couldn't do that except very, very, very slowly. It would take us probably decades to get where we are now, where now we can discover these things in a matter of a year or two. While we're creating tools for aquaculture, which is important because this is an important industry here in the state of Rhode Island and worldwide. Aquaculture is on the rise in terms of our needs in order to provide protein to all of the, the people that are eating on this planet today and in the future. This interplay between uh, beneficial bacteria, harmful bacteria, the hosts that they reside in, this is a model that you could imagine includes everything. Uh, other types of agricultural uh, products, whether it's animals or plants, and even humans. Finally tonight, stuffies, clams casino, fried clams, clam bakes, and clam chowda. They're all summertime staples here in Rhode Island. But as we first reported back in June of 2021, the ever-popular shellfish faced a serious threat from COVID-19. <laughs> the dog days of summer are finally here. For many Rhode Islanders, that means beaches and bivalves, especially this year. Clam shacks and clam bakes are coming into their own. It may be the most COVID-safe cuisine option. The outdoor setting, ideal for social distancing. But oh, what a treat. For the Cohoggers who are the founders of this feast, it's been a long, tough winter. Just ask Lou Fratarelli. How much of an impact did COVID have? It, uh, it still has an impact because stuff hasn't come back to normal. He's been digging for Rhode Island clams since he was in high school. What was it like when you were growing up? This time of year, at least 100-something boats on the water. Now, I, I don't even know if we have 100 full-time guys. Nowadays, it feels like he has Narragansett Bay all to himself. This is all fishing grounds right in here. Guys. No. No. It's, it's calm today, so if you need to make a living, today's a good day to do it. Well, was the only way. The basic tool of the trade is a rake attached to a basket at the end of a 30-foot pole. The methods haven't changed much over the years. High tech. Oh, yeah, high tech as you can get. <laughs> he drops his rake right down to the bottom of the bay and scrapes by hand. So what, you're just digging the bottom now? Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm working the rake back and forth. I can kind of feel them. You can feel the clams? Yeah, like, do you hear them? Start to hear them. They're screaming, oh no! Lou's here! Now you sit and do this for four to six hours a day. Well, you get your workout, huh? And then I haul it back with that left there. Yeah. Anything under two inches is too young to take. He has to throw it back. This will be 28 cents. That's 13, and these are 35 cents a pound. 
At the height of the pandemic, when the restaurants all closed, the bottom fell out of the market, and with it, the price of clams. A lot of the shops shut down. Then when you got back fishing, you were on a limit, which was just enough to, basically was a, you were going out just to stay busy. And so there's no place to sell it, so nah, no place nothing. to fish it. It, it. I was basically doing it so I didn't, didn't go crazy. Because I, I went from working six, seven days a week to like, oh, you can't work. I go nuts. I'll get in trouble. I'll stay on land that long. It's a job that has social distancing built right in. Of course, normally he'd have a few deckhands on the boat to help out, but Lou says it's been hard to hire help during the pandemic. I think that's a problem all the way from guys doing construction to us. I mean, uh, if you're getting double what you usually get for unemployment, why would you come back? I, you know, I, you don't find a ton of people wanting to do this anyways. Yeah, you know, it's a hard way to make a living. Because you don't have nothing. You have no health insurance, no retirement. The only benefits you get out of this is... Uh, some fresh air and a suntan. Some, some, yeah, and some arthritis and some other aches and pains. That's, arthritis is your bonus. The COVID limit was 500 clams a day. Now it's back to 12 bushels a day. This trip, you won't even get half out of it. Not the easiest way to earn a few clams, even in a good year. And COVID has made this year especially difficult. Restaurant closures, the demand for social distancing, and other factors meant that this was a tough year for commercial fishermen. It's estimated that here in New England, more than 90% lost money during the pandemic. The average revenue lost more than 50%. Lou brings today's haul over to a local seafood wholesaler a few blocks away from the dock to cash out. Places like Andrade's Catch help keep the fishermen afloat by providing a market even when the restaurants weren't buying. They hand sort the clams by size using this machine to tally up the haul. By law, Lou can't sell direct to consumers, so Davey Andrade and his family filled up their fridges and sold what they could over the counter to people cooking at home. We tried to keep buying product and we were just uh, stockpiling it in our coolers because New York was fully shut down, Boston's fully shut down. That was 90% of our market um, for over 30 years, you know? So when that had happened, we were reevaluating everything and making sure we could still do this, honestly. And how has the business changed at the end of all this? Uh, dramatically, and I think for the better, honestly, because now we're able to get a more local market. So instead of all these clams going to restaurants in New York City, mm -hmm. they're going to people's homes here like, in Rhode Island. Yeah, exactly. Quahogs and whole fish in total. And it seems like people are more open-minded to uh, buy something that's here and caught locally, you know, rather than uh, your salmon that comes from Alaska. Sort of like the fisherman's equivalent of farm to table. Exactly. It's nice to see, you know. That's a good thing. Yeah, it had to come from this, you know, and sometimes 
you can see some good in the bad. But the tough times aren't over just yet. So we've got 300 little necks, mm -hmm. nearly 200 top necks, 64 big ones. Yeah. Did that whole haul this morning, $131.88. I mean, thank God I like getting up and coming fishing every day. But Lou will be back out tomorrow and the day after that. It gets a little harder as you get older, but... Fishing isn't you know, just his livelihood. But when the fishing's good, you, want, you, you, don't, you don't even want to sleep. It's but, his life's work. I mean, like, this is a... This is a nice day compared to what we've been getting. We're happy to report that the industry is now bouncing back. The state has opened up the Providence River, and while there's a six-bushel limit and a three-hour time limit imposed, Lou Fratarelli, the shell fisherman we spoke with, said it's helped a lot, and it's bringing the price back up. Well, that's our broadcast this evening. I'm David Wright. And I'm Pamela Watts. Michelle San Miguel will be back from maternity leave next week, but we want to take a moment to thank David Wright for filling in. And we also want everyone to know that David's going to be bringing us more stories, and we're very much looking forward to I that. I hope to do a lot more stories, but thank you so much for, it's been fun to fill in, and I love being part of this team. For sure. And we want to thank all of you for joining us this evening. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at RIP pbs.org slash weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you once again and good night.